This episode of the Ready Room is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. This is JG Hertz for General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to the Ready Room, show number one hundred thirty-four. In two minutes, we will release the Badgers. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me this week is Michael Fisher. We'll be talking about some Star Trek news, including two interviews with new Star Trek film writer J.D. Payne, how a com badge may be in your future, Star Trek Online's arrival on Mac, and an STO Mirror Universe event. Then in the feature, we're joined by John Mills to discuss the DS9 episode, Civil Defense. So let's step into the ready room. Hello, Michael. It's so good to have you back on the Ready Room with me for the first time in quite a while to co-host. And there is something going on here. Now, I may be the publisher of Trek FM, but someone has apparently not informed me of the new dress code. Matthew showed up this past week to record literary treks wearing gold command pajamas. And now you're wearing a science TOS bathrobe. What is going on? You know, it's it's important. Not only am I doing that, but I'm also mixing genres as is detailed as necessary in the new uniform code of Trek FM uh, with the, the TNG style com badge on an unmarked tunic beneath the the original series science tunic. So, yeah, this is something we're doing now. If you could read that uh, that pad that I walked over to you, uh, that it would be great. Okay, I need to do that. So you're basically like the real world version of Star Trek Trexels, where you're mixing TOS and TNG together in one story. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think it's important <laughs> that that you should carry a really cool flip top communicator right next to a, a flip top tricorder from Next Generation. I don't see that there's a problem with that, really. No problem at all. No Good. problem at all. <laughs> well, it's good to be have back, you Chris. back on. It has been a while. How's everything been going? Everything's been going wonderfully. It's been I've been absurdly busy uh, at at Pocket Now and elsewhere, and I've recently picked up, in addition to this fine robe that I'm I'm really enjoying, which was a, a Christmas gift from my father. I recently picked up a new um, a new starship for my collection. I have uh, I've, I've I've graced my collection with the, the USS Excelsior. Oh, nice! Presenting to you now, yes, because I photographed the, the I have the JJ Prize, you know, the Playmates version of the of the um, 2009 films Enterprise, and that's what I f- photograph for device reviews when I'm testing a smartphone's camera. Like I usually try and th- throw in a shot, and I'm just so tired of shooting it, uh, especially as cameras are really good now, and I can get up really close and see the awful panel lines and stuff. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this Excelsior model is going to help me. Uh, change things up a little bit. That's a really nice looking model right there. It, she is. She's quite, quite beautiful. And Captain Sulu speaks if you press the bridge. It's lovely. Or, or you know, just impulse cruising if, if that's what you're into too. Well, I thought you were going to pull out the USS Vengeance from Star Trek Into Darkness. 
Oh yeah, there is nothing like a there's nothing like an oversized, strangely designed <laughs> enemy enemy Starfleet vessel to really make your day. No, I, I I don't have one of those. Are you? I mean, I've asked you this, Chris, but are you uh, getting the the monthly starships, or is that not something you're doing? I want to get them, but they are not available to me here in Japan. I have no uh. way to get those. If if they were available here, I would definitely be subscribing to that because they look really, really nice. And I'm really itching to get some Star Trek ships to go along with my original Colonial Viper, which is sitting here on my yes. desk. So say we all. Oh, that looks good. It's a perfect size, too. Those little little vessels, I mean, they, they're going to be so much fun to, to to photograph in the macro. I, I am not getting them either, Chris, but I could get them, but it's just laziness on my part that is preventing me from having them. <laughs> Well, let's jump into our news. And speaking of the JJ Enterprise and the Vengeance, our first news item here does relate to the next Abrams first film, which right. is unfortunately being called by me as well at the moment, Star Trek Three, for lack of a better name. I don't <laughs> so like confusing. calling it that. But since <laughs> I don't know what year it's going to come out yet, you know, I mean, they say 2016, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true. So I'm not calling it Star Trek 2016 yet. It's Star Trek Three. Do you have a better word for this? No, it's so confusing though, because I, especially now that I have the Excelsior on my desk, because now I'm just, I'm totally in a search for Spock kind of way. But I'm like, no, I, I, I do not yet have an alternate title for it. But I think, I think I would be fine calling it Star Trek twenty, um, twenty sixteen, if I didn't feel like that would be jinxing it, right? Right. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Well, yeah, so, whatever we mm-hmm. want to call it. It was announced back in December that Roberto Orsi would have two new writing partners for the next film, and those writers are J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, and they're very mysterious. In fact, Michael, if I'm not mistaken, I think you and I talked about that the last time you co-hosted with me, and the fact that these guys have written 17 scripts, none of them have been produced, and of the scripts that they have written, there is sort of a comic book slant to their approach to what will likely be their approach to Star Trek. At least it is to their approach to writing and the subject matter that they've tackled so far. Yeah, that's true. We did speak about this last time I co-hosted. And, and I may have made the point back then, and I don't know if you are with me on this or not, but that makes an awful lot of sense given what we know of the JJ universe of the, the rebooted Star Trek universe. Like it is very much more a, a comic book style land uh, in terms of, in terms of character interactions, in terms of, you know, conflict and the, the way this, all of it kind of shakes out. It feels much more like a comic book film or series of films to me yeah, than the original yeah. one did. So I think it, you know, it fits. I, it, that doesn't surprise me that, that people with that particular stylistic leaning, uh, have found a home with the new Star Trek. And I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a nice fit. Yeah, I think it's a nice fit too. And as I mentioned before, I think when we talked about it, the Abrams first comic books have actually been quite good. Yes. And so I think taking that approach to it might give us an interesting story. Now, the news that that's out there right now about this is that because we know very little about these writers and we, we don't really have anything to go on, you know, there's no produced movie or television show or anything out there with their names on it. We've been wondering more about them. And two different interviews have surfaced on Mormon-focused websites. So I, I assume that 
at least J.D. Payne, who is the person who is being interviewed in both instances, must be Mormon. And that's why he's being interviewed by these people. I haven't looked into it. You know, I don't really care about those kinds of things, but that must be the reason why these two particular sites have the interviews. Uh, one of them is called LDS Living, which, as Star Trek fans know, is Spock's favorite magazine from the voyage home. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's important. You, you see him later on with the, in Star Trek six with the, you know, those big pads they're carrying around that are part plexiglass and part giant computing unit. He's got a, a couple back issues of LDS living loaded up on there alongside all the ones and zeros of, of Star Trek six L cars. It's very nice. Right. Because really, you can never do too much LDS. That's exactly right. You know, it's, he's, he's got Berkeley memories, man. You can't you can't just let that go. You know, you got to hold on. <laughs> but apparently, LDS Living LDS. is also uh, a Mormon-focused publication. And they were interviewing Payne, and they asked him, so what's next for Star Trek fans? And he responded, I can't really talk about much at its core. Star Trek has always been about adventure, exploration, and wonder with an optimistic sense of the future and all its possibilities. It's a massive playground. We're so excited to be diving in on it. Man. So, I, you know, if he doesn't, if he does not have a future in, in film writing, if he decides to give it up for whatever reason, he's always got an option for writing corporate boilerplate, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is the most generic response to an interview question I've ever heard. Of course he has no choice, but it's like, Oh God, can we, can we devise something else to say when we can't say anything, please? Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. It does sound kind of like that. However, what he does say in here that, that I find interesting is that he points out exploration and wonder and an optimistic sense of the future, which is quite different than what we have been getting in the Abrams verse, but it's more in line with Gene Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek. And does this give you some hope? And is it what you want to see? that the next movie might feel a bit more like the Star Trek we're familiar with than what we've been getting from the Abrams verse. I think no, it, it, it's yeah. Is it what I want to see? Yes. It does. It give me any hope for that? No, I, you know, I remember these conversations after the 2009 film where everyone, you know, people who were optimistic about this kind of thing were like, okay, JJ had to reboot the thing. So he got a free pass on this one. We had to have an action adventure. We had to have a lot of time to re-meet everybody. Maybe the next one will bring us back to the, the roots of Star Trek. And of course, Into Darkness, as much as I enjoyed it, really didn't do that. And I don't see that coming from this, from this series. I think this is a series about making very successful action films that happen to be called Star Trek. I don't I don't think they're about exploring the roots of Star Trek because I don't think you can necessarily do that very effectively in the format of a film. You know, I, I think we're going to need another TV series to do that. So, yeah, you know, I think the next film will be very fun, but I don't buy any of this, uh, this, this kind of stuff. I, I think it will be, yes, adventure, exploration and wonder with an optimistic sense. Absolutely. It'll be that, but, but no more, I think. Well, he also talked to a publication called Mormon Artist, and he was asked about how he and McKay started working together. And I do want to point out that this is not Dr. Rodney McKay from Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis. This is Patrick McKay, his writing partner. Right. Just want to clear that up, you know, in case anyone was confused there. He said that they met in high school and they directed a short play together for the school's one-act festival. Since then... 
they've written something like 17 scripts together. And wow. that's where they are right now. He, he did point out that the Hollywood average is 13 scripts for every one produced as a way of countering um, concerns or criticisms that after 17 scripts, they still haven't had anything produced. But, you know, I have to yeah. say that if they, if they wandered in to J.J. Abrams' line of sight and he brought them in, there must be something there because there's no denying the fact, whether you like J.J. Abrams' work or not, there's no denying the fact that he's an extraordinarily successful producer in Hollywood and, and you don't um, gain the trust of someone like that easily. That's, yeah, that's very true. And I certainly think it, it 17 to one or, or whatever it is. It's what did you say? The ratio was 13. To he one, says there, I didn't, I did not verify this, but he says 13 to one is the Hollywood average. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's any apprehension that anyone can reasonably take from this appointment based on the fact that these guys haven't actually sold a, you know, a, a script yet. And, and to the, to the fullest degree, um, long odds are part of the game in terms of Hollywood. Uh, I had a friend who moved to New York City and she was an actress and, and she had a, went on, gone on 800 auditions in one year and had booked exactly eight, eight gigs. I mean, she had, had a 1% wow. success rate and was very excited about that 1%. So yeah, this is, it's, it's part of the game. So you you're basically, chair, you know what I'm saying? so you're saying that being an actor is about the same as direct mail marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except the work itself is a lot more fun, and the pay is is uh, is, is awful. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, he was also asked how they became involved with Bad Robot, and he told the story again about Boilerplate, uh, this film that we talked about in the past, and that he's told the story before. And then he said he should leave it at that, and he added, "People think Edward Snowden got exiled from the country for the NSA WikiLeaks scandal." In actuality, I heard his real crime was leaking a super secret pizza recipe from the kitchen at Bad Robot's offices. Yeah, I, I read that and I was like, I'm I'm on the outside of a of like a, an inside joke that 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 is just making so. me fully aware that I've never had pizza with Bad Robot. So okay. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's what we know. So a little bit of new information about the writers of the next Star Trek film. Interesting to hear them speak up a little bit. I, I just, I find it, it's kind of an unusual situation of having someone who's in such a high profile position with the Star Trek franchise being so unknown and kind of having to fill these questions and there being this mystery surrounding them. Because normally when new people have come in, you know, they've come in to work with more established names that we already know. And there's kind of this smooth transition. You know, if you think about Brandon Braga, coming in on TNG and ultimately being executive producer on Enterprise, working his way through the franchise. Uh, we're, we're accustomed to that. So this is a little bit jarring. A little bit. And, you know, it's – but I think we have success stories and stories of, of total failure on either side of it, right? We've had we've had experience. People make some really poor Star Trek films. We've had some, um, some people from outside come in and make some really bad Star Trek films. And we've had the opposite, obviously, with Russ Meyer. He was a newcomer when Wrath of Khan happened. We know how that worked out. And, you know, I, so I, I think there's just I, – I am not full of any apprehension with regard to this appointment. And I'm 
I'm kind of refreshing. I find it kind of refreshing. These guys are total, total unknowns. I think that's, that's the best kind of excitement when you're like, I have no idea what to expect from you. So this, this will be fun. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, let's move on to the next story. And you told everyone earlier about your TNG com badge that you've got there underneath your bathrobe tonight. Now I know you, you're the gadget guy. That's why you're kept in two phones. That's why you're at pocket now. I know that you want to have a com badge that actually does something when you tap it. And there have been a number of projects out there over the past year or two with people trying to develop com badge-like technologies. And there's this one particular one that you've covered for Pocket Now before, and you've actually talked to the guy who um, is is creating this. And uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, this was a story we ran way back in 2012, uh, which is much longer ago in tech time than it is in, in real ancient time. history. Ancient history, way Michael. back in 2012. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the the product is actually called Combadge. Like that is the brand name. It is yeah, with two M's, by the way, if you want to look it up. And uh, the guy's name is Charles Crimsock, and he envisioned a device that you could – magnetically attached to your shirt that is about the size of the combadges we're familiar with from Next Generation. Uh, but it's very no frills in terms of its aesthetics. It's just a little cylindrical device with a big old speaker on it. And it's it's surprising to me how compact it is. But the idea is not just to provide a Bluetooth. It connects to your phone via Bluetooth. And the idea is not just to provide a speakerphone that you can wear for your calls which would be very annoying to everyone in your immediate vicinity, of course. Yeah. But uh, to to provide a voice link to a virtual assistant like Siri or like the Google Now service or the forthcoming Cortana on Windows Phone. And in that respect, I, I sort of see the, the see the allure, right? It's You don't have to fish your phone out of your pocket. You just tap your com badge and it is activated by a, a press, by the way. So you actually just tap the badge. And um, you can set it to respond a number of ways, and one of those ways is to activate, say, Siri. So it's like, Boo-doo. remind me to go get that milk later. And Siri's like, okay, I'll do that. And uh, you can there are a couple <laughs> things, a couple different hardware designs. You can attach a badge and a clip, uh, a clip-on like cord spool to it. So if you have a badge reader at work, you can do that. You can wear it on a lanyard. And the news. So this, I had an interview with uh, Charles back in 2012, who. We had some wonderful quotes in there. He's, you know, he didn't like the idea of headsets, so that's kind of what motivated him to make this thing. And the emphasis is being on multitasking and and just not having to take your phone out as often. And in concert with other wearables like Pebble smartwatches and stuff, you could really leave your phone in your pocket for a long time. Is the idea? Um, but the initial crowdfunding run was on Indiegogo, and they failed to make their or they made their goal, but then they had some manufacturing troubles. They had to run a second round of crowdsourcing to get this thing out the door. So it's still uh, the project is still very much alive, but the new news is that they have a Kickstarter thing going on. They have to meet that goal to re-engineer the hardware, basically. And okay. apparently, in the process, they've made it more compact. So there's. Not uh, it's it's not all bad. This delay. I see. So so there was interest the first time around. They got some funding, ran into a few glitches, and uh, here they are again trying to um, wrap it up and, and get it out to everyone. Exactly. And they the old Indiegogo campaign was uh, pretty 
pretty lofty. I don't remember what the number was. The new Kickstarter has a target of twenty thousand dollars, so okay. uh, that's significantly lower than the Indiegogo. So I, you know, it's I can't remember whether I've backed this or not. We're getting a, a review unit uh, at Pocket now to review it once it's actually been produced, but that won't be a keeper. So if I want one of these to keep afterwards, I'm I'm gonna have to think about throwing in throwing in some dough, but we'll we'll see. But it's open now, so. Okay. That's the new news. So this is kind of like supplemental funding where yeah. they they got most of it the first time around and, and now they're just looking for a little bit more. Well, that exactly. sounds very interesting. I mean, I would love to have a, a combat type device. I, you know, I, when I go out for walks, you know, to, to exercise and all, I do have my phone with me and, you know, I pull it out to check stuff and I, I don't like doing it. And the idea of being able to keep your phone in your pocket is is very alluring. It is indeed, especially if if in the process of doing that, you can you can you know reach under your jacket and and tap your and tap a badge that you wear on your breast, and it's like oh, it's it's like it, I I feel like it would give me the same feeling as flip phones did in in two thousand three. Oh yeah, you know when I pull a phone out of my pocket, pull and flip it out, and flip. Yeah, and you looked so cool, didn't you? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, well, this sounds interesting. We'll put a link in the show notes to this as well. If you want to go check it out over on Pocket right. Now, and then jump over to the uh, Kickstarter campaign as well, and uh, see if you can help them make this combat a reality. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, we have one more item in news today, Michael, and this is about Star Trek Online, which we don't talk about all that often here on the Ready Room, but. You, we use Macs, you know, I mean, you use all kinds of computers because that's your job to, to research things. But I think you're a really a Mac guy, aren't you? On the desktop, I certainly, I, I certainly am. Yeah. In mobile, I'm all over the place and I, I actually don't prefer the iPhone, but when I'm doing work on my desktop and I need a machine that's going to get the job done. Yeah. The MacBook Air is, is all I use. I have a variety of machines, but the MacBook Air is really it. So it was surprising to me to learn that Star Trek Online didn't work on Macs for a long time. Yeah, yeah, it's it was surprising to me, somewhat surprising to me as well. It wasn't necessarily surprising to me that they launched the game without Mac support, but it is surprising to me that they took four years to actually release a Mac client for Star Trek Online. But it's finally here. It's been out for a while in beta. Um, I did download the beta when it was first released, and it didn't work well at all on my computer. And so I quickly deleted it and said, I'll come back and revisit this when they release the final version. Because the beta would only run in a little window, you know, you couldn't run full screen on it. And it was just you know, kind of defeated the, the point of the game. And so now it's out, though. And if you're a start, if you're a Mac user, and you've been waiting to jump into Star Trek Online. Now you can. Uh, my co-host, Matthew, who listeners of this show know, and of course anyone who listens to the Orban Literary Treks knows Matthew from there, he uh, told me this weekend that he jumped right in, and he's been having a great time. He is a female Andorian captain. He's got his own ship now, <laughs> and he's roaming the galaxy. So um, if your name is Esri Dax, you better watch out, because he's coming looking for you. <laughs> It's so cool. You know, I, I have never played I have to fess up. I have never played it. 
I've been told about it for literally years. I see advertisements in my Facebook feed all the time because Facebook is hip to my to my wants and knows to pitch me Star Trek stuff. But uh, th- this this might push me over the edge. Now that it's available for my preferred computing platform, I might give it a go and see if I can secure myself. Can you get an Excelsior class starship in in that? In, in Star Trek Online? Do you oh, know? I'm sure. You can get every class of starship. You can get lots of starships oh, that never appear on screen in Star Trek Online. I know. And I, I saw like the Galaxy Class reboot they announced a couple weeks ago and I was like, eh, okay. Whatever. But I, if, I could, if I could grab a, a modified Excelsior class ship with those sweet flanges and uh, extra impulse engines that, that cook the fronts of the warp nacelles, I think I could be happy there. Sounds like that would be fun. Well, you should go check it out. Now, I, like I said, I, I did check out the, I I have a Star Trek Online account. I used to play Star Trek Online when it first came out. And the way I do it is how all Mac users have been doing it up to this point, which is by running Windows in Boot Camp on their Macs. And right. uh, it wouldn't run under virtualization. So if you use something like Parallels to run Windows on your Mac... You know, that works great for most things you need to do in Windows, but this it's game requires this. so much power from the graphics card that it just wouldn't run well at all under virtualization. So you really had to go into Boot Camp and boot your computer as a Windows machine so that you had access to all the power of your system. Well, that pretty much meant that people like me would never play the game because I yeah. use my computer to do work. I don't have time to completely reboot my computer just to play a game and then boot back into my computer again to continue right. on with with work if I want to take a little break. So so now uh, you can play it on here and even when the beta was out which I mentioned a moment ago I was able to go in and play a little bit found it didn't really work very well. I tried to go back in and unlike you Michael this is not good news for me even though I'm a Mac user because I cannot play Star Trek Online because for some reason, now that Star Trek Online and Cryptic are owned by Perfect World, Japan is a banned region. China, Hong Kong, Macau, South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, Egypt, and Japan are all banned by Perfect World. Anyone living in these countries, we cannot play any of these online games. There is no explanation given. I've tweeted at them. I can't get a response. I don't know what the reason is. They claim that Japan is banned only for the game Rusty Hearts because there is a localized version of that game put out by a Japanese company. That I understand. I get that. That makes sense. But otherwise, um, what they say about Japan is inaccurate. We are actually banned. You cannot even create a Perfect World account if you're located in any of these countries. Oh, that's a shame. I'm sorry to hear. You just seem to run into no shortage of <laughs> trouble trying to get trying to get materials from the rest of the world to. I, let me know if I you know. I feel like just mailing you a little Miranda class starship, just in a little envelope, <laughs> just so you can have something from. I'm just from I, I'm just world. really really puzzled about the Japan thing because we used to be able to access Star Trek Online with no problem, and now yeah. we're banned, and there's no explanation given. And it doesn't make any sense to me because Japan is, you know, it's one of the biggest markets for yeah. the Mac, for for gaming. 
in general, uh, I don't understand it. So I'm, I'm quite frustrated with Perfect World and Star Trek Online about this. But I am very happy for everyone outside of these countries who has been waiting for the game to come to Mac that you'll now be able to play it. Well, I've I've got my fingers crossed for you, Chris. Hopefully someday soon that will be rectified. That sounds like a mistake. It does sound like a mistake, doesn't it? Maybe maybe I have fallen into an alternate universe where Japan is banned from everything. I don't know. Watch for falling <laughs> ultridium or whatever. <laughs> Speaking of alternate universes in Star Trek Online, though, we do have one more little bit to the story here. Star Trek Online is running a special limited time event called Mirror Invasion. And this is an event where you battle the invading forces of the Mirror Universe. And it's running from now until Thursday, April 3rd at 7 a.m. Pacific time. And this is an event where you can, you know, you can earn some rewards. If you are a player who has level 50 Federation, Klingon, and or Romulan characters, you can queue up for the remastered cross-faction 5 Captain event to defeat the Mirror Universe forces and earn multi-dimensional transporters, which I guess is what Dukat uses to beam into ops in the episode (laughs) we're going to talk about in the future today. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that, <laughs> that, that definitely plays a part. <laughs> I could use one of those multidimensional transporters right about now. I, I could think of a, a, a one or th- two uses for it. Yeah. So other rewards that you can get your hands on, 50,000 dilithium ore, 500 fleet marks, 250 marks of your choice, and a very rare, unique duty officer. <laughs> Okay. Listen, as a Star Trek Online neophyte, I do not know what that is, but a very rare duty officer sounds like something you might want to have around for problems, for moments of boredom. I don't know. What do these officers do? How how unique are they? I'm picturing I'm picturing an officer who has the body of A-Rex, so he's got the third arm and the third leg. He's oh, got Moressa's cat head, and then he's got Andorian antenna coming out at the top of his head. <laughs> See, that's – huh. Okay. All right. That's, that's, a, that's, a, good, that's a good creation there. <laughs> I, uh, I would probably go for a, you know, a Targ in an official Starfleet uniform with Neelix's <laughs> cooking skills just, for, just to you know, mix it all up a little bit. I think that could be a very useful thing. That's perfect. I'm now. I'm picturing now a Targ running onto the bridge wearing a Starfleet uniform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and but I'm also picturing, as we often talk about with Cetacean Ops, how would Commander Flipper tap his com badge with his little short flipper arm? How would right. the Targ tap his com badge with his little short leg? Oh, yeah, we would have to install, like, there would have to be uh, comm <laughs> panels at ankle level throughout the ship, uh, activated by headbutting, I think. <laughs> that would be the best way to do that. that you're right. This awesome. whole thing sounds like a lot more trouble. That You're right. I'm I'm giving that up, and I'll, I'll have a different, very rare duty officer idea <laughs> next time I come on the show. All right. So we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to go over to Star Trek Online and grab the Mac client, which you can now download and uh, also find out more about this mirror invasion event. And um, also, you know, support those of us who have been banned for no apparent reason. Yeah. Ask Perfect World why they're banning Asia from playing online games, because um, it seems like we're pretty much all 
on the outside looking in over here in Asia now. All right, well, that's all we have in news today. But Michael, before we jump into the feature, we're going to be joined by John Mills to talk about the DS9 episode, Civil Defense. We'd like to tell everyone about our sponsor for today's show, and that's audible.com. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks online. They have over 150,000 books for you to choose from, and they put new books into the queue every single week. Hundreds of books, in fact. Uh, not just Star Trek books, but pretty much every genre that you can think of. Uh, I'm personally looking forward to listening to Mikio Kaku's new book that just came out as well, because he's one of my favorite scientists. But what we like to do every week is to recommend a book to everyone listening, because you can get any book of your choice absolutely free as a Trek FM listener just for trying Audible. So, Michael, as my co-host today, do you have something that you would like to recommend to everyone from Audible? I certainly do. I'm very excited to to be able to do this because it is uh, – like – maybe like me – um, this book is not f- for everyone. <laughs> you will either <laughs> like this or you will, you will not, uh, you'll really dislike it, but it is a deep space nine novel written very early in the seasons in the series run. I think it's one of the first books ever written. Uh, it's called fallen heroes. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Fallen you know heroes. I read about? that in paperback when it first came out. So did I, I still have my yellowed pocketbooks copy sitting somewhere and that stayed with me for a long time. This is a book by, uh, I don't know how I've never known how to pronounce this author's name, but I'm going to try uh, Dafid Abhug. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's narrated by Rene Aubergenois, and uh, in its um, in the in its audible form, it's two hours. It's about two hours long, so it's been cut down a little bit. But this is a book uh, which basically, and I'm not doing any spoilers here because this this happens pretty quickly. Uh, pretty much everyone you know on DS9 um, dies. <laughs> and there's a big old mystery involving uh, an alien, a strange device from the Gamma Quadrant, and Quark and Odo, an improbable pair trying to solve this mystery. But I think what makes this book stand out for me is how very, very dark it is. It is um, – Yeah, it is. Yeah. Gruesome. I mean it's gory at point. I think it, it pushes Star Trek books to the limit of what – of I think what the audience will accept. I mean it's – it's very disturbing. It's 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 um. But I like that. I, I like authors that kind of push the envelope a little bit, and I certainly enjoyed seeing DS Nine through that lens, especially as early in the series as it was when we we all knew it was a darker Star Trek. But how dark could it really get? This book sort of explores that boundary a little bit, and I think if that sounds if that's if that's interesting to you, then this is definitely one worth uh, worth clicking onto and listening. And, I'm looking forward to doing it too because I would love to hear Rene Aubergenois read it. You know what I mean? Well, especially with Odo as being a focus of it, that would be exactly really excellent. Well, you've got me interested again as well because, like I said, I I did read that when it came out in paperback. I remember you know buying it new off the shelf and reading it. I have not read it since then, so that's been 20 years. So I I only vaguely remember the storyline, but I do remember it as being dark, as you said. So so now I'm curious too. I might have to go pick that up myself. I hope you, if you do, let me know, and we'll we'll compare notes because I I'm going to take a dive back into it myself as well. Sounds good. Well, and as a Trek FM listener, as I mentioned. You can also get this book absolutely free or any other book that you want to pick up from Audible just for trying Audible. 
And if you love podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks if you're not already an Audible customer. So so really go over and, and try it out today. Sign up for the trial. If at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep this free audiobook. So go check it out at audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And your support of Audible helps us keep the Ready Room coming to you every week. And we really thank you for doing that. And we thank Audible for supporting the show and the network. And once again, that's at audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hurry up, girls. Seconds are ticking. Seconds are ticking. Hurry up. Hurry up. Hurry up. Hurry up. Can't waste time. Hurry up. Can't waste time. When you're racing up. with the clock. When you're racing up. with the clock. And the second your hand doesn't understand that your back may break and your fingers sink. And your constitution is a made of rock. It's a hurry up race when you're racing with the clock. Hurry up. Racing, racing with the clock. It's a race when you're racing with the Racing, racing, racing with the clock. During DS9's third season, as the show's complex and dramatic storylines continue to unfold, Iris Stephen Bear and Ronald D. Moore wanted to slip a straight action story into the mix. And the story was called Civil Defense. It centers around a dormant Cardassian counterinsurgency program that is accidentally triggered and begins locking down the station. And it seems like a simple bottle show, but it turned out to be one of the most grueling writing and production experiences for the cast and crew of DS9. But they were happy with the way it turned out in the end. And today we're going to talk about this episode. And to help us do that, we have back with us someone who's becoming a DS9 regular here on The Ready Room. It's Mr. John Mills. John, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, glad to glad to have you back. I understand that you're experiencing quite a snowstorm. Is it anything <laughs> like the feeling you would get if you accidentally triggered a counterinsurgency protocol there in your home? Well, it feels like we've all been locked down. Uh, there's no escape right now, and uh, I'm fairly certain my home is going to self-destruct by the end of this episode. But uh, we're working on it. We're optimistic. You just want to be careful when you go to your fridge in the middle of the night. You know that you go to the the ice maker and it doesn't just generate a phaser spontaneously and, and start shooting you in the face. <laughs> yeah. Watch out! Right there. Yeah, in I'll the stand slot. Thank you for the tip. I'll no stand problem. off to the side. <laughs> Can't be too careful. Oh. <laughs> Well, before we jump into the conversation, a quick rundown of the episode for those who have not seen this one in a while. Miles and Jake are down in one of the old ore refinery areas of the station, and they're going to try to turn it into a deuterium refinery. And they stumble upon a file in the computer that uh, can't be deleted, and it activates a program that the Cardassians had put in in case the Bajoran workers try to revolt and take over the station. And it's a series of different levels through which the station takes different steps to put down the uprising by locking things down, shooting phasers at people, releasing poisonous gas. And it's just one thing after another. And as the crew tries to find a way to disable the program, as the episode goes on, the danger level rises, and then Goldicott shows up, only to find that he also is trapped with them. And that's basically the story. Uh, everyone does survive, spoiler alert, 
Uh, this is the third season episode, so everyone does make it out okay. Uh, I'm not sure about the voles. We may have <laughs> lost a few of those, but everyone else okay. <laughs> so that's that. That's the story. Now, Michael, you chose the episode today. You had actually mentioned to me a while back on Twitter that you were interested in doing this episode, and I remembered you know the basic plot of it, and so I thought it was kind of an interesting episode for someone to to really want to discuss because it is more of an action story sure and the main thing i remembered from it is that this is how i learned that on my computer if i put a file in the trash can and the trash can won't let me delete that file you know how that error message pops up sometimes i just leave it alone you you don't want to press i'm just (laughs) yeah i i'm scared to, to push it too far (laughs) <laughs> so tell me, why did you choose Civil Defense? You know, I, I have wonderful memories of watching Civil Defense for the first time. Uh, you know, this episode aired, I think, almost 20 years ago. It was well in in the time period when I was watching Star Trek uh, every week as it came out, re- you know, religiously. And this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about this later, but it has so much of the of the Star Trek that has become so easy to make fun of, you know, in in, in recent times. But right. which when yeah. when you when it's leveraged within a Star Trek universe that you're really invested in, it can be just so much fun to watch. I, I always thought it was kind of a shame that bottle shows got such a bad reputation because ostensibly there's this people are clamoring for alien landscapes and, and ways to get off the ship. But I was always so obsessed with the ships and the facilities like Deep Space Nine uh, and especially Deep Space Nine uh, because it, there is so much to explore. Which you skillfully called out in the, in the show notes here, and it's uh, so I, I never minded being stuck on the station for a whole story, and I, I really, really am glad we got the opportunity to see not just the station in this episode, but a station bent on hurting our heroes. <laughs> it's like a, the computer haunted house episode of Star Trek, and uh, I that, that's that's I think the primary allure of this one for me. If Michael served on Deep Space Nine, he would never show up for duty. People would say, Where, where's Michael? He's wandering somewhere through the catacombs of the station. Right. Just exploring. crawling through the uh, the Cardassian <laughs> Jeffries tubes looking for plasma fires. Yes. <laughs> yeah, what are what are Cardassian Jeffries tubes called? Who would that be? Yeah, really. Are they legate tubes? Yeah, like, like, great like, question. Legate <laughs> catwalks. I don't know. <laughs> 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 Who's a famous Cardassian? Well, John, <laughs> Tarek tubes. Yeah. John, what did you remember about civil defense? Uh, I didn't have a, as fond a memory of civil defense um, as 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 Michael did. I I have to be honest that rewatching it for this really sort of confirmed why my memories weren't as fond. Uh, there are aspects of this episode that I really like. Uh, there are aspects of this episode that I really don't. And um, for me, it's one of those episodes where if you're a fan, you're going to dig it. But if you're not a fan, it's not the one to sell somebody on this series. Because the first ha- for me, the first half of it is so uneven in terms of its setup. And it doesn't really come alive until I think it's about the 24-minute mark. Like it suddenly, there's this energy burst that suddenly just comes into the episode and all of a sudden the stakes all of a sudden escalate and everything seems much more real. There's no, it's at that point where the real sense of danger comes in for me. So there are definitely elements of the episode that I enjoy, but it's very much an uneven episode uh, from my point of view. Now, would you say energy burst 
Are you talking about the little phaser ball in the replicator? <laughs> that that was definitely memorable. It was. Uh, yeah. Actually getting to see somebody get atomized on uh, on television was always <laughs> yeah. a treat. Well, um, you know. As you guys may have noticed from the show notes today, the phaser ball was actually played by Jeffrey Combs. He is everywhere. Naturally. Of course. I mean, who else? Who else <laughs> could deliver this kind of vibrance uh, that Jeffrey Crumb has brought, yes. you know, brought to that brought to that role? <laughs> he, he, he he's he's such a versatile actor. <laughs> sure he really is. is. John, let me ask you another question. Now, you said if you're a fan, you're going to dig it, and if you're not a fan, you're not going to dig it. Do you mean a Star Trek fan or a DS9 fan, though? Because I feel like if you're a DS9 mm. fan, maybe you're not going to like this episode as much as many of the others, but if you're a Star Trek fan or a TNG fan, maybe you are going to like this episode more because it's a little bit more in the vein of general Star Trek and a little bit less like what DS9 had already become by mid-third season. Now, that's a great point. Uh, No, I hadn't considered it from that angle, but as you say that, I could see where it could be maybe easier for a Star Trek fan in general to plug in than a, a DS9 fan. Sure, I, I could see that that point of view on it. For me, maybe maybe my own reaction as a DS9 fan is is strong enough to maybe overreact in one direction or the other. Mm. Um, that's a that's a great point though. I don't I don't know. I, I don't it makes have a degree of sense. I, I like the question too because I even I and I'm a huge DS9 fan and watching it, I could understand how someone who was um, much more invested in the experimental you know track that ds9 was taking then where it was just kind of dipping its toe into uh, serialized ideas and and bigger concepts i could understand how somebody who who valued those things very much would be kind of put off by this this like kind of bottled up show where it's just like oh we're gonna have a a, you know another version of like tng power play basically except on the station yeah Okay, power play. That, that's interesting. I was also going to mention that I've heard some fans compare this to worst case scenario on Voyager. Sure. Although I think they're sufficiently different because that was a situation where someone on the crew had written a program in order to study the possibility of something happening. And it was a holodeck program. And this is very, very real. You know, they're going to die right. in this situation on the station. And also, you know, at least in uh, in that Voyager episode, you know, we could we, – you had human motivations or at least biological, you know, <laughs> human-like uh, motivations there. You had Tuvok's motivation in writing the program and then um, Seska's motivation in, in coming in to, to mess it all up. So although it was the holodeck um, putting everyone in danger, it was really – you know, there were people behind it. Whereas in this one – I think that's one of the scarier aspects of it to me where it's yes in the midst of all this sort of hilarious 90s computer jargon like did you download the operating system and reformat the memory cluster <laughs> in the midst of all that stuff where you're kind of LOLing uh the computer takes over and then you know the computer is not, is just executing commands that's been given so it mm-hmm. is it is there's no malice there's no anything it's just you know it, it, it's running a program based on parameters it's been it's been given and there's no way to reason with it there's no way to get around it i think that in in a way makes this episode more scary than than um than that one than the voyager one you know what it reminded me of it mm. was like one of those old choose your own adventure yes. books though yes <laughs> because when cisco realizes that 
he can actually tell the computer that we surrender and that will trigger it's like a branch for the for the program totally. of what action it's going to take right. And then when Ducat keeps telling them, you know, you have five minutes to make your decision <laughs> and you do feel like, you know, like you have five minutes to get to page 43 <laughs> and then flip over to right. page 81. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that is a nice moment with Cisco though, where he's just like, oh, guys, I got this. Okay. Computer, we surrender. And, you know, and then, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But while you... Well, you mentioned yeah. the Ducat thing. I just want to say like that – isn't it funny – Ducat recorded messages obviously for a lot of different um, scenarios. Isn't it funny <laughs> to think of him like, you know, whatever, 10 years before this episode, yeah. like, you know, putting a day aside. It's like I have to do – I have to sit in front of a camera <laughs> and just think of ways they could screw us and then I will address it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like he took he took one or two days, and he just locked himself in a studio with like a, a green screen, and he's like, "Okay, uh, revolt!" Uh, and now we need to cover mess food shortage, and uh, now uh, sun flare. Uh, yeah, he just has scripts sitting waste there extraction prompters. <laughs> I know this has yes. been trying for all of you. Yes. <laughs> and then there's the one where he says. If you're hearing this message, it means that voles have been released on the promenade. This wasn't an easy decision. In two minutes, we will release the badgers if the voles have not been removed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I would have liked a little bit, in a, in a rare lapse of attention to detail, because um, I feel like they would have caught this. I, I was annoyed that it was kind of standard Federation lighting in all of his videos. It would have been cool to see him recording those on like, <laughs> you know, the old school DS9 where it was, you know, Tarak Noor lighting with blue and not much light. And, you know, that would have been oh, yeah. better. But whatever, yeah. that's just a little nitpick. <laughs> but can we talk? Maybe yeah. this is a Section 31 thing, though, when he actually recorded all that in a Federation studio. <laughs> it's a feder- it's like, like, the, like the moon studio we used to fake the moon landing, right? Is it something similar right. to that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But – the, like I, before we get away from the mysteries of the station, though, I mean, I think that was you know, wasn't isn't that fun? Because we had TNG do that a little bit with lower decks, but once again, that was more a character exploration. Like if you're a a nerd for the fact that the Federation is just kind of up and moved into this massive space station, and even three years later, they're still finding cool stuff. I loved our time in the Uridium processing facility. It's like not only this isn't just a random room that we decided to call whatever, cetacean ops, you know, on a Federation starship. It's like, no, this had a purpose that was tied into the station's previous purpose. Mining, the stuff would come down from here, they'd mine it and whatever. And we got to see all that and we actually got to MacGyver some of those elements in there like the uridium to to serve a purpose. And I just think that kind of stuff is so much fun when you can see the see behind the curtain a little bit uh, in, a, in a Star Trek facility, you know. I, no, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think that that's um – it, it's all. It is always fun to be in uh, the innards of Deep Space Nine, uh, because it really demonstrated. I I think that speaks to the idea that they really demonstrated a lot of uh, thought about the station itself, and they didn't. Even if they were doing it this way, it never came across as we're just creating this room out of whole cloth because we need right. it for an episode. Like this felt like it actually belonged and it made sense that this room Absolutely. was there and that these things would have, would have been happening. And even the, the, in, when they're talking about it and O'Brien's giving the details about it, it speaks more because it's so easy to forget 
you know, over the span of, you know, episodes here and there, that since you're not seeing the brutality that the Cardassians practiced on the Bajorans, you can separate yourself from it. But they would take these moments to remind everybody of how brutal the Cardassians were, that people were dying processing this stuff just because it got so hot in there that they just would fall over and die. And, you know, that, that, that really, that really gave a lot of, um, a lot of weight to, you know, the, the show as a whole, but also an episode like this, like that, just taking a small moment like that to really highlight what it was that the Bajorans were going through and why it was such a good thing that the Cardassians were gone and why they, why Kira would say later in the episode, I'd rather blow the station up than have yes. you guys come back. You know, you can, you can understand that. Absolutely. Right. It's also interesting, the idea, not not just the facilities, like having this room down there, which is cool, too, because it makes the station feel so much larger. Mm-hmm. You know, like there, there are these catacombs of the station that we never, ever see. But also, on all the other series, because we're on a Federation starship, we we kind of know what's in the computers. Like, we know what's around the ship. Like, the only great discovery that you might make, something you just didn't know was there, would be like on the Enterprise D when you find Argyle in the Jeffries tubes with his gym thing, or, <laughs> yes. or like the time when he moved into the battle bridge because it hadn't been used for several seasons. Absolutely. And they, they open the door and Argyle's in there in his underwear <laughs> with the posters up on the Using the view the screen walls. to watch some sweet fishing shows and such. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's like the only discovery you're going to make. But, but here in the first season, in. Babel, we have the the aphasia virus that gets released because that gets tripped. You know, that's something that's hidden in the computer or hidden in... It actually, I guess, was um, attached to the replicators, right. right? So it starts getting into the drinks. And, yeah. and then here you've got this counterinsurgency program, and who knows what else is hidden in the crooks and nannies of the station and its computers. And it's, it's just... Um, it's, it, it highlights that feeling that while we're focused on our crew and we see them as, you know, these are our heroes and our Starfleet crew. They're really, you know, like living in borrowed space. Absolutely. And, and Bashir even says it yep. uh, right out loud, you know, he's, he gets suddenly crestfallen in ops. He's like, I was just, just starting to think of this place as home. And then Kira's right there and she's like, your, this, your home was built by Cardassians. Don't forget that. Don't ever forget. Yeah. And yeah. it's sage advice when you're finding crazy stuff all over your state. I mean, really, yeah. And and that that that's that's so wonderful after after so many years of, of living on a sterile uh, Federation starship, which has its has its appeal to have this kind of almost mm-hmm. hostile and, and sometimes dangerous place. So, yeah. Even that even three years later the show we're still exploring. I think that's pretty cool. Because this could have been a first season episode and it wasn't. And maybe it maybe it should have been by some rights, but I think that that works here for for it. It might have felt more in place yeah. if it were in the first definitely, season. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, but if it had been in the first season, you wouldn't have been able – because they were able to leverage um, that moment later where uh, you know Garrick and uh, Dukat start fighting. Yeah. And it's Bashir is the one that can say to Garrick, hey, 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 call, call <laughs> That's down. That's right. You're not helping. Let, let, let's cool it. And you have all of that background by that point to say – Oh, okay. You know, like the only voice that is going to soothe the savage Garrick is going to be Bashir's by that mm-hmm. point. Right. Yeah, I agree. The, the characters themselves are developed more here, and so it wouldn't have fit in season one. The overall feel of the show itself probably might fit better there, uh, just because there was so much else going on at this point in the series. 
Hmm. Well, let's talk about the parade of Trek tropes. Now, Michael, this is something that you outlined for us. Yes. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's perfect because I have almost all of these in my show notes as Do well. As what I, I wrote them down as they were happening in the episode. And so it was really funny to see you have the same thoughts and you outline them here. So t- tell us what... What can we find in the parade of Trek? Well, Star Trek is really fond of giving us these, right? And, and, you know, uh, these will be familiar to anyone who's watched any degree of Star Trek or even something like Galaxy Quest, you know, where they've become so well known that, that these are no surprise to anyone. However, very few episodes put so many of them into, you know, in such a dense fashion. We have, um, in this episode, we have disobeying orders to save lives when, Jake is told to stay there, but O'Brien's incapacitated, so Jake gets in there. And in, in addition, you know, we have O'Brien. I thought, thought your father told you to stay put <laughs> after he gets rescued. <laughs> we have uh, one of my favorites, Shoot It to Fix It, which is Kira blowing off the door panel so the door will, will open, which is great because apparently – That felt a little bit – Yeah, it was weird, right? right? Because she shot the door thing and then Bashir had to then activate a manual hand clamp that apparently didn't work unless you <laughs> shot it with a phaser. Right. Right. <laughs> That, that right, felt a exactly. little bit Star Wars to me. It's like something that Han Solo would do, right? <laughs> totally. Oh yeah, no, uh, yes. It, it's it's the hot wiring uh, something on well, the yeah. fly that you then I have was just to hot say, wire like, again. The, this is like a combination of those, right? Because you have the hot wire. You've that's another of my favorites. We rip the panel off the wall and then like fiddle with stuff inside. This one was like a double <laughs> thing. It's like he's already fiddling. Doctor, get out of the way. He she blows it away and then he goes back and fiddles one last time. <laughs> Like the, the best door open ever, and then the best yeah. fiddling in Star Trek though is in the Galileo Seven, where Scotty takes the panel off and puts the wrench in and starts working the wrench in the panel, <laughs> yeah. and goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, this that actually reminded me of that that outtake, one of those rare DS Nine outtakes where uh, I think it's Rom uh, Max Grudenchik is is trying to work something and it's like Renee. Yeah, can I do this? And he's like taps it, and the thing, the whole thing falls <laughs> off the wall. <laughs> like broke the set. <laughs> but uh, in addition to that, yeah. there's shoot it to break it, which is I, I love that this station is, is so massive and the life support system obviously so crucial. But if you make it to the op- operation center and shoot <laughs> shoot the computers <laughs> controlling life support, everybody's dead. <laughs> right? Yeah, I gotta imagine that it's kind of anticlimactic if you're staging yeah. a revolt. Like I would expect it to be more <laughs> difficult. Too. I'd be like, "Oh, that's that's all." There are video yeah. games tougher than this. But we find out here that if you shoot the life support and destroy the life support system, there's still 12 hours of air on the station. Right now, I can imagine in another episode the life support system would be destroyed and everyone would die like within oh, yeah. 30 minutes, 12 minutes instead of 12 hours. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 That was, yeah. I, I was, I wondered about that math too. I'm like 12 hours. There's a lot of volume inside that DS nine. I'm not, I think you could probably last a little longer than 12 hours, but then again, we learned, I think we learned in this episode that the station has 2000 people on it, which I'm not sure we knew before. They do mention 2000 people. Although I don't know if that can be taken as an exact number or just Ducat saying 2,000 people will die right. you know, if you don't give me money. But it's, it's a long way from the number we were given initially because the, in the season one, I think the station's complement was 300 or something, right? It was, it was tiny, wasn't it? Well, yeah, maybe. But since then, people have moved in. They've come back. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's a nicer place to live. So Or, yeah. or to... To turn it on its head, maybe it's that the conditions were so bad that they had so many Bajorans crammed into a space that wasn't 
you know, comfortably habitable for 2,000 people. That Ducat saying 2,000, and now they're fluctuating between like 300 and 1,000. I know I'm reaching here, but may, sure. maybe it works that way too. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. I, I don't mind the like a fluctuating population number. I just thought it was interesting because I do remember watching this in its first run. And unless I'm remembering wrong, this was the first time when he said 2,000. I'm like, really? Because I thought – well, actually my thought was that's more like it because this whole time I thought there were still like 300 people on the station. That's not enough. This station's huge. It needs to be. But yeah, I think if everybody moves back. Well, I think there are 300 people inside Quartz Bar. <laughs> yeah, on I think you're day. right on a good night. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We also have yeah. uh, on the trope list, we have swapping chips to hack the computer, a favorite. <laughs> Just – <laughs> and for that one, I was thinking it's too bad that Data's yeah. not there because oh, he could have really yeah. put those chips gone in crazy quickly. on the Iceland chip swap. Right. Um, we have uh, the, what I mentioned <laughs> before: the, the using the iridium ore to blow blow a hole through the door, and a sweet glowing light uh, cable to ignite it. I love seeing the inside of light fixtures on DS9 because apparently every wire glows. <laughs> it's pretty cool, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, when we have, then finally, we have uh, exact time to failure in the auto destruct countdown, and uh, a red shirt getting whacked, and the and the return of the green plasma fire. So so much of Star Trek condensed into one episode. <laughs> it's just wonderful. So this in that way, this is the episode you want to put on if somebody is only vaguely familiar with Star Trek and doesn't really want to get into it, but kind of wants to see their worst <laughs> their worst expectations realized in that storytelling sense, I guess. Everything you think about Star Trek and what happens in an episode, <laughs> here's an hour and let's sit down with some popcorn. Exactly right. Go. This could be a great <laughs> drinking game. I, I, would all, I would also throw out there, though, that um, there is an echo, I am sure, completely unintentional to uh, the motion picture where Dax burns her hands Oh. And Bashir run, rushes over to her, feels mm-hmm. just like that uh, Chekhov burning his hand scene Good in the motion picture. You are picture. so right. And I unconsciously, I just realized as I was rewatching it today, I unconsciously expected him to spray her hand with something. Like I expected that and, right. and, and instead the tool just did it invisibly. But, oh, wow. Yeah. Good connection there. Well, thank you. I, I I'm a hundred percent sure that it's unintentional on their part, or maybe it's in, maybe it's an Easter egg that they put in there for themselves. I don't know. Be, I mean, the DS9 writers were better than any of the other series at paying homage to past Star Trek and the original series and doing it in very subtle ways. So it's probably completely unintentional, but it wouldn't surprise me if they did have that in mind. Yeah. When they when they shot it, and so. I'm going to have to go on the internet and find this out. Yeah, I was going to say this I'm might be a question to, down to put to one of the showrunners. Uh, the, and there there were callbacks. I mean, I mentioned the green plasma fire, which was established in Next Generation. I thought that was cool to, that it made a comeback, but also um, the the phaser ball, <laughs> the coolest yeah. coolest new weapon ever. Uh, it works properly because the minute I saw the replicator replicating a weapon, and I knew what it was when I was watching it, I thought, oh crap. Because I had been a loyal reader of the Next Generation Technical Manual. I must have read that thing about 50 times, seriously. And, you know, there was a point that was always made in the in the kind of behind-the-scenes literature. is like you can't use a replicator to, to make a weapon um, because of these limitations of science. But the replicator gets materialized and then a beam of energy like drops down from the replicator and fills it. And it's only maybe an extra right. three seconds of film time, but it makes so much sense. Like, oh, well, this is working as it's intended. Yes. Replicate the weapon, power the weapon, and now the weapon can work. I think that's that was so cool. Plus, it's a Cardassian replicator. Well, oh, well true enough. Yes. They're optimized for so, coffee and guns. 
<laughs> right. So as Kira tells Dukat, we like our containment fields to be non-lethal. Right. Yeah. So the Cardassians were were fine with with uh, turning off safety mechanisms. I think. True. Yeah. Although although I have to wonder if um, because when Dukat deactivates it so that it stops firing, he walks over and he hits a very obvious three button. <laughs> Yeah. sequence and it's almost like <laughs> did it was it reading his dna in specific it must have was been. there something about be. his fingerprints because why couldn't somebody sneak up to the panel and just start hitting buttons at random and eventually you're going to get that that uh that that sequence yeah ducat has the worst android pattern unlock like ever he just draws a square <laughs> <laughs> that's all he does yes <laughs> yeah well, remember, it was targeting non-Cardassians, so Garrett could have been the only one who could actually get close enough to the panel to try anything. But he could have gone up, yeah, and, and, and you would think that if there were a code, he would probably know it. So maybe yeah. it was reading Ducat's DNA. That thing was vicious. Yeah, I, I, I mean, really, I, honestly, that, that was a very fun scene to watch because it was like, oh, wow, how are you going to get out of this one? Yeah. And it's like, oh, Deus Ex Ducat. Excellent. <laughs> awesome. Well, this is why Starfleet should issue lightsabers to all officers, because then they could have pulled their lightsabers out, you know, been like like well, Luke in his training. Oh, gosh, Falcon. this is a road we don't want to go down, because I've often <laughs> pondered whether the phaser energy, the way that the beam comes out, could be absorbed by the saber or whether it could block. Oh, so uh, it's a, a whole question. thing. We'll save that for our new podcast where we really dig into the <laughs> geeky science of yeah, Star let's, Trek. Let's shelve that one for right so, now. Not the real awesome. science, the just science. the, the yeah. made-up science. You know, science. I, I yeah. think it, these situations could easily be avoided by equipping all Starfleet personnel with special wharf-type uh, combat shield generators on their belts. Better remember that. Yeah, the, uh, fistful of data. Yes, it would be a very smart. Oh, move. just fifteen seconds, but sometimes that's all you need. Yeah. All right. Well, the the phaser ball leads into the next topic that I wanted to talk about, which are some of the production challenges. Because in the intro, I mentioned that this episode, which seems like a simple bottle show, turned into a real nightmarish experience for the writers and for the production. In fact, Iris Stephen Bear referred to this as a backbreaking, horrible, horrible experience. <laughs> but then he goes on to say that it was terrific in the end. Specifically to the phaser ball itself, though, is that the doing those effects, the visual effects of a phaser, doing them at this time in 1994, it was really expensive. And there are close to 60 phaser beams that are shot by this phaser wow. ball. And so bottle shows typically save you money, right? <laughs> but because of this phaser ball, it turns out there's about two and a half pages of dialogue that has to be delivered by the actors while this phaser ball is shooting at them the whole time. And so figuring out how to balance the cost of these scenes with the phaser ball with the other things that needed to be done was a real challenge. And I think maybe that's why, Michael, you said you were expecting Bashir to like spray something on Dax's hands and instead mm. it just kind of magically, the device did it. You know, I think that's another case where maybe if they didn't have 60 phaser beams being fired <laughs> at everybody, they, maybe they could have had like a little beam go down under our hands or something. And they're like fancy. And they talk about the plasma fire as well, which you mentioned the green plasma fire and it turns mm -hmm. out, you know, that was very easy to do because they talk about the software that they had at the time and how it was able to isolate a color and change that to anything, which, of course, seems trivial to us now with computer technology that, you know, I mean, I can do that here with any video myself. 
just on my computer and I'm not a visual effects guy. But at that time, you know, that was really qu- quite a capability with mm-hmm. visual effects. So Absolutely. Watching this now, there's there are no visual effects in this episode that seem amazing to us in any way, but it was a real challenge for them. Yeah, and and there, I think, in keeping with a lot of DS9's work, at least pre-massive CGI fleets and gasoline explosions in space, like it really holds up nicely over time. I think you know everything from the little stuff, like the insides of panels and the isolinear rods, and and the the fine detail to those disruptor bolts coming from the the phaser ball, which are not – like if you freeze a frame, they're not just kind of trivially made things. Like they, they kind of look like angry lightning bolts inside lightsaber blades. They're really <laughs> intensely rendered beams. And all the way yeah. up to the, the deflector explosion at the end, you know, uh, the, those bolts coming out of the deflector generators and, and hitting the shields. It, it all just looks so nice. I think the only thing in this episode that bothered me from a visual effects standpoint was that the uridium explosion could have been a little – could have had a little more punch to it. Like there's this like flashbang yeah. paper goes off, and suddenly there's a hole in this three inch thick steel door. It's like I, I don't know, guys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you wonder why rocks fall from the ceiling on the Enterprise <laughs> in the alternate timeline during battle, but yet nothing flies out here in an actual ore processing facility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the explosion was so yeah. powerful it opened mm. up a, a trans-dimensional gateway to the Enterprise C bridge. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. That's uranium ore we see blowing everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I well, I mean, it, it's def- it's definitely March of um, you know March of technology. Definitely uh, with with, uh, with how much easier it would be for them to do that now. Uh, no, no doubt, no doubt. And, uh, but I, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really think about how they sort of shortcut on the, uh, on the escape from the processing facility until just then I was like, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, wait a minute. That, that was a little bit, maybe you could have had 50 phaser shots earlier instead of 60 and, (laughs) and saved a little bit. Right. Well, think of something else that we didn't see that we might, we would probably definitely see now, and we might have seen if they could have balanced the effects budget a little bit more. When Cisco and Miles and Jake are in the corridors after they have escaped, they talk about running into force fields, but we don't actually see them running into force fields. Oh, true. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. In the corridors, yeah. Which works fine. You know, I mean, I, I don't need to see them running into force fields. It's fine for me if they just tell me about it. But it does feel like like if you get into Enterprise, for example, by the time they were producing that series, I think you definitely would have actually seen force fields going off all around them in the corridors and them trying to poke their way through them. Yeah, I think it, maybe that speaks more to the fact that like the end of the show has, it almost feels so rushed. It, like it speaks it to the unevenness of the show where it's like they spent yeah. so much time with buildup and then they finally get to this point where everything's um, – full of energy and fun to watch and then it gets to the end and there's very much a sense of uh um okay uh yeah everything's got to get done in like 30 more <laughs> seconds right. so uh they tried everything and they're fine you know <laughs> they're okay move yeah. along move along yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> they're, they're alive see you next week <laughs> well the other production challenge and maybe the bigger one and this is what ira is talking about when he says that it was a a back breaking process, a horrible process 
was with the actual writing of the story itself. So the story was written by, it was pitched by a writer named Mike Crone. And this is actually the only Star Trek story that he sold. And he was very, very busy apparently and wasn't able to really work on the story after the story had been um, picked up. And so in the outline for the show today, you may have noticed that I wrote written by Mike Crone, rewritten by pretty much everyone. Yeah, yeah. Because Mike Piller like really hated this story, apparently, and just really, really hated it. In fact, I believe that the quote from Ira or Ryan um, was that he hated it, he hated it, he hated yeah. it. That's <laughs> how strongly he felt about it. And... But but I kind of get where he's going with that in that it's an action story, but DS9 is so much about the characters. Like, how do you get the viewer invested in the story itself? Because it's not really enough just to have the characters in danger and every time they try something, something new pops up that stands in their way. And so they, they needed to work in a way to to elevate the level of danger make you feel more concerned for the characters and also uh, bring character moments into the story. And Ronald D. Moore compared it to the experience on TNG of working on yesterday's Enterprise. And have you guys heard the the main place where I've heard this story is it's actually on, I think it's on the Star Trek Six commentary, on the Blu-ray commentary, and it's Larry and Ira. I believe actually who are talking about the experience of writing yesterday's enterprise and how that episode was a disaster from a writing standpoint. And they, they just killed themselves. I think they even said they worked over Thanksgiving holidays, but they really killed themselves to pull that thing together. And they thought it was going to be a complete disaster. And of course it turns out to be one of the great next generation episodes. Yeah. And he compared this writing experience to what happened to them trying to make that episode work as well. That's interesting. Yeah. It bear apparently has no uh, shortage of it, it, descriptors for this. He says the writing process turned out as painful and disgusting as we thought it would be uh, starting out with a phone call from, from Michael Pillar at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning. I don't think this was as big a triumph as certainly as yesterday's enterprise by any means, but to see that they were yeah. able to like the challenges were in trying to, trying to get some character moments out of this otherwise mindless action story. And I think they did a nice job starting in particular in the, in the domains of Ducat and Garrick, we got to learn a lot about, about each of them in this episode, yep. you know? Um, well, I, I think that the, the moment between uh, Kira and Ducat is great, even if only because of the line where he says, I can't believe you destroy the whole s- station because you don't like, us you know like you can feel him trip on the me yep and and then even uh-huh. later garrick saying oh stop trying to impress her already a married man <laughs> At, like those those moments are really what salvaged the episode so yeah i i can i can see why you know if it was such a difficult process trying to trying to get those moments out of it why the writers would have been unhappy with the process but Getting those little nuggets out, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, at least that shows how much they cared about it. That the reason it was so painful is because they cared enough. And I thought that the the Odo and Quark scenes were nice. 
I don't think it should have necessarily nice. ended with them walking off into the sunset like that. <laughs> but I was I was willing to live with it because it was still funny where Quark is so flattered that Odo thinks he's the most devious person he's ever met. And then he looks at his files later and he's like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is complete. You know, and I was like, yeah, I thought we were going to die. I wanted you to be happy. I was like, that was, that's cute. Odo is so thoughtful. Yes. Yeah. Exa- <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, I like the exchange with them when they can't get yep. out after Odo's office is locked down and Quark <laughs> says, you mean I'm stuck in here with you? And Odo says, no. I'm saying I'm stuck in here with you, a far worse fate, believe me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then that, that yeah. turns out to be true later because Quark starts losing it and just tries to phasering his way through the force field. <laughs> I love that because I, you know what I want to see? If Star Trek ever comes back in the air in a big way, I want to see someone succeed at phasering their way through a force field because we've never seen it. <laughs> it never works Wouldn't out for anyone. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? That would be fantastic. Yeah. But, uh, well, with all with all of the things they've they've since done with like modulating the frequencies and stuff like that, yeah. maybe the maybe there's our our in for that to happen. Yeah. yeah, we need to have somebody having trouble trying to get through a force field and have and someone anyone from Voyager show up and just say, oh, just just remodulate the isokinetic something or other. Oh, oh, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I think they did a good job of getting some character moments in here, although. I think that I can feel that some of the moments feel forced into the episode. Like like we're really trying to find a way to get some character moments and build character in this episode. And one one that I want to talk about, like, okay, let's go on and talk about Dukat next, actually, sure. because we, we already okay. mentioned his exchange with Kira here. One of the things that I felt was forced in here a little bit was when... Garrick just kind of blurts out to Dakot, you know, stop trying to impress her. She's never going to be attracted to you. And like, I, I get the purpose of it in the episode and they do use that to plant the seeds for indiscretion and other stories involving Kira and Dakot and, and Dukat's feelings towards Kira anyway, later on in the series. But it felt so like, out of nowhere like what was going on at that moment for me anyway like i I was never watching that and thinking that ducat's trying to flirt with kira here and he's trying to um to get kira to be attracted to him and then garrick just blurts it out did did it feel that abrupt to you guys or did you feel like something was going on there and and garrick was the only one who would speak up I didn't feel that it was abrupt, but I can see why you would feel that it was shoehorned in. Um, Shoehorned—that's the word yeah, I've been trying to I, remember. And yes. I think that I think that that speaks more, even more, to the idea that the the episode comes alive around that twenty-three minute mark, and Dukat suddenly appears, and you almost get a feeling that if they had instead rewound it. As much as I like the fact that you find out how the innards of the station work and you got, you know, uh, Jake and O'Brien and, and Cisco all trapped somewhere, that maybe if they had backed it up and instead of this being a, you know, a, a thing that they tripped and then Dukat shows up halfway through, maybe, you know, it's something that Dukat knew was there. Dukat shows up in ops and they're like, what are you doing here? And then he trips something and says, oh, this is a little program I had built in. And then it can go go wrong later. I think it's because the show really starts to rush near the the back half of it 
is the reason those moments start to feel forced uh, when, when it when it comes to it. Yeah, they might have gone a little heavy with the exposition up front to to reacquaint us with the Bajoran Cardassian struggle, and 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 yeah, then run ran out of time later. Sure, I I could I could definitely see how that the the pacing could be improved throughout in that in that way. As as for whether that was felt forced, sure, I think Garrick made a little bit of a leap there. But I think if you're going to have any character do it, you know, Garrick is the one with the motivation to try and get under Ducat's skin. I knew that something was coming right as that scene started, though, because Ducat is speaking in these very grandiose terms and acting as though he has a lot more time than than any of them do. He's like, there is no no problem cannot be solved by the application of some good old fashioned Cardassian mind grease or whatever he says. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking? Why is why are you so relaxed? And then Garrett calls him out on it. So yeah, I, I, certainly it wasn't as smooth as. Uh, as it could have been, Chris. I see where you're coming from on that. Well, I saw Ducat's grandiose nature here as them building up his character to be a bit more evil and self-absorbed and arrogant as we we come to know him than he had been up to this point in the series. Because here, you know, he comes in and he could. Now, it turns out he couldn't because he didn't know... (laughs) that um, Leggett Kale had built in a, a safety measure against Ducat. I mean, you never know. There's always another Cardassian who's built in a safety measure against you. But he didn't know about that. So he, he thinks he can just deactivate everything, save everybody. You know, it would be easy. But he's not going to. And it, it seemed to be more of like he sees himself way up here and then everyone else in the universe is down below him, which is, that's the Ducat that we come to know later on. Absolutely. And it's it's so gratifying then because he does come in and strutting around. He gets a coffee from the same replicator that has the phaser ball in it. And then, you know, he's just so unbelievably in control. And it's a wonderful opportunity for Mark and Lamo to just just be, you know, cock of the walk, baby, and just walking around and, and having a great time and flicking Cisco's baseball off his deck, his desk. And yeah, I like that. Yeah. Just so many of these wonderful things. I think we should get some Cardassians back on the station and all that. And every time I rewatch this episode, I always do forget what's coming. Because at that point, I don't know if it was the same for you guys on your first watch or whatever, but I'm like, well, how is how are they going to get him out of this? Like, what's he, he can't have his way. What's happening? I love it. He tries to beam back to his ship. He's like, you guys think about it. I'm going to go sit over there and watch you explode if you don't agree with me. And then he can't beam off the station because yet another Cardassian has been sitting in some other office making a bunch of videos just in case <laughs> his underlings <laughs> fail in their duty. And then he just gets reamed. He gets insulted for a solid like 40 seconds and the best put down ever. And now he's stuck. I, I thought that was such a nice, nice way to not only bring Ducat on and show us how sinister he is, but also to slap him in the face and uh, and dump him right into the problem along with everybody else. I thought that was great. I love the idea of all these Cardassians sitting in studios just making videos all day long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's part of yes. <laughs> it's part of your duties when you when you join the, the Cardassian Defense Force or whatever. Imagine how unpleasant it is when somebody gets fired or transferred. <laughs> Yeah. Think of all of the repercussions of that, of somebody having to sit there and be like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, they probably fought really hard to keep people in position on places. Like, right. they desperately. That's why they were so mad at uh, at, at Garrick. 
was all think of how how high he had reached and they had to rewrite all of that stuff and refilm everything and they're like oh yeah fine you're banished forever man you're never coming back i know it's got to you got to make sure you 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 don't screw up at your job i, <laughs> yeah, I see true. someone sitting in an office on on cardassia and they're just going about their business and suddenly this view screen there's like three view screens across from their desk that have the exact <laughs> same image on them and this cardassian appears on there and says if you're seeing this video, you have failed to mail pension checks on time. <laughs> In two minutes, we will release neurosine gas into your office. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Always the go-to. There was, yeah. It's always neurosine <laughs> gas. Nurse. Which is which is weird because neurosine gas has this weird like you know tendency to pool at your feet. Where you're not going to breathe it. Can you imagine how long it would have taken that room to fill up with neurosine gas? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. They, they, so you order everyone in the station. You're like, everyone evacuate. Don't crawl. Don't crawl. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Stand up straight exactly. and walk to the escape. Remember lines. your posture when you're getting to the runabouts. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, did you guys also think, and this kind of caught me as well because I had not watched this episode in quite a long time, when Ducat first appears, did you think just for a moment that maybe it wasn't really Ducat? Yes. Maybe it was like a holographic projection and there were holographic emitters hidden in the station that no one knew about also? Because yes. it was like part of the program that like holographic Ducat would appear in ops? It it would have made sense. It, it You're not sure that it's really him until uh, he addresses... I think Kira is the first one he addresses by name. Yeah, and that, that's the point at which we're like, oh yeah, okay, this is the first non-generic greeting that he's had, right? Uh, yeah. With with anybody, and um, and his appearance is so sudden that you you doubt that it's the real dude, uh, mm-hmm. you know, right off the bat. So yes, I agree with you on that. I don't know. I think I, I saw the transporter effect, and I was kind of instantly that that brought some authenticity to it that I that I would have denied it otherwise. But he just beams right onto the deck, though. He doesn't even use the pad, right? So, yeah, I could see how that would be weird. I, I do think we're thinking in our, like, post-nemesis brains, though, because yeah. this was a point before Star Trek decided to kind of throw some things out the window like like it did with holograms. Like, we had Voyager right. with the mobile emitter trying to make up for some of the uh, deficiencies in that. But then later on in Voyager, we had people using very advanced holograms like the think tank using a, a transpositional thing that's more advanced than a hologram. And then right. Shinzon can just roll up onto anybody's ship with apparently hidden hollow projectors that could not have gotten there. So, yeah, I think at this point, though, none of this had happened. And I was like, oh, OK, well, he can't be. Uh, he's real. He's really there. He, he just beamed in. <laughs> now he's all bemused, and I, now it's fun. I, I I like the phrase "post nemesis brain" because <laughs> I I, th- I think that's an effective call out right there. I think you're yeah. absolutely right that <laughs> yeah. that had I never seen had I not seen Nemesis, I wouldn't have applied that sort of logic to Dakot's appearance. Oh, isn't that uh, but, sad? But it's it's still so jarring mm. that you know he just come he just he's just there. And it, yeah. if everything's locked down and the shields are all up and nursing gas is going everywhere and there are plasma fires <laughs> and all of this stuff, but he just appears and he's just like, hey, what's up? He's <laughs> like, wait, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, the time that's involved, right? Because he's supposed to be the leader of Cardassia, right? He's At least at this point, he's definitely a head honcho within the military. I, I, is he at that point? I don't think at this point. At this point, he's not like the leader of Cardassia as he is later you know, referred to later on. He's just a goal. But 
but the idea that he is just on a ship patrolling the demilitarized zone at this moment and receives a distress call and can just hop right over and beam aboard. Yeah, yeah. that's a little convenient. He was just, yeah. he was just in the neighborhood. So, <laughs> was just, you know, although maybe no, that was. Go ahead, John. No, I was going to say maybe maybe that was meant to speak to uh, his obsessive nature with Terok Nor. Totally. He just he couldn't leave it. Exactly. He is the guy oh, who yeah. could not get past graduating from high school. Like he's never going to leave his glory <laughs> days behind. He just kind of hangs out around the block at the pizza right. place, waiting waiting for the underclassmen to get some, get some lunch. He's but Matthew hey, McConaughey hey. and he's <laughs> confused. <laughs> he just that explains why we see Ducat wearing his Letterman's jacket all the time. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. He takes his warship. He just kind of stops runabouts randomly all the time. He's like, y- y- y'all got any fun stuff in there? What's happening? <laughs> uh. Later on, you see Dukat years later. He's got all gray hair. Yeah. He's kind of hunched over, but he's still stopping runabouts and questioning <laughs> he's still people. wearing the same letter. Don't jacket. you know who I am? <laughs> I'm Gold Dukat. <laughs> yeah, he, transi- he transitions from dazed and confused to like Biff Tannen in uh, Back <laughs> to the Future, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. What about Garrick in this episode? You know, this is the... It's the best glimpse that we have of Garrick's past life since The Wire, which was at the end of season two, where we really are seeing, we're learning a little bit more about just how deeply involved he was with the Cardassian intelligence, with the Obsidian Order. And everyone else is there in ops. And here comes Garrick strolling in. He's like, you know, yeah, I've I've got clearance. And this was kind of creepy, right? He basically tells them that, Oh, you know, at any time, I can activate any panel on the station and just watch whatever's going on. <laughs> yeah. It is yeah. it is more than a little creepy. And, but it, it's wonderful because the um, there's not a convoluted explanation for why he has that access. It's like we, we have never trusted him. We've been led not to trust him since the moment we met him. So that's not too much of a surprise. And the way he gets up to ops is that he's a Cardassian and the computer knows he's a Cardassian. And that – Makes sense. It's one of those rare instances of this improbable situation having a nice detail that is totally believable. It's like, oh, right, he's a Cardassian. He can do what he wants because this this program is designed to protect Cardassians against Bajoran you know, workers. So I, I, I liked that. And when he showed up, I said on this rewatch, of course, because I'd forgotten that he shows up. Of course he does. We bring Garrick up and he's got just enough of uh, authorization to bring us a little bit more detail about what's happening, not enough authorization to do anything about it, which is fun. And then he screws up mm-hmm. and gets us into even deeper trouble. Right. Yeah. I, you would think that somebody that connected would have known that the the life support uh, trick wouldn't have worked or Probably. Would, would have also – I mean honestly, he has he has all of these high clearances. He, he, you know, he was a secret agent, all of these things. Like – you, you let it. I let it go, but it's it sort of doesn't make sense that he can't override this program. That because wouldn't they have had somebody like him on the station that would have been a check against Ducat making a play for power, like Ducat going too far down or Ducat snaps or he dies. I mean, why is there even a recording of Ducat? Why why wouldn't that have been? I mean, why wouldn't that have been a live thing? Or if if the commander of the station couldn't make these announcements, why wouldn't it have been an, um, you know, an automated voice just announcing these things as opposed to having the the recording of 
I mean, I, I can sort of reason that out, but for somebody who is that connected, it, it would make more sense for me that Garrick would have, you know, not, not just not had the clearance to get in there, but would have maybe just screwed up along the way. He would have tripped the wrong thing. He would have forgotten the sequence or something like that, as opposed to, well, I have all of this fantastic clearance and I can do all of these things, but I don't know how to save the station. It's like, eh, I think once you hit a certain level, you should be able to do everything. I don't, I don't know. I, and I think you probably can, right? Unless the person who could, who had the most impact on your clearance levels and, and all that stuff is the, is the person who hates you the most. So I, f- I feel mm-hmm. like if you, you're right, John, I, th- I think that there's, it makes all the sense in the world for, for Garrick to have all the access he could possibly enjoy. But, I, you know, Dukat didn't trust him at all. So I could see – I could believe that there was some meddling happening in the security suite. Like, may, like maybe Dukat went back and, and was able to figure out where he was right. and got somebody else to come in and help him freeze Garrick out without Garrick's knowledge. OK. All right. Yeah. I can buy that explanation. I can buy yeah. that. Well, and I think I think it's that, and I think that if you're going to freeze Garrick out because Garrick has been exiled to the station, and Dukat hates Garrick, and we get we get a little glimpse in here of why that might be because Garrick starts, you know, jabbing Dukat with bits about his father <laughs> yeah. and the trial yeah. and all this. But if you're going to freeze out Garrick and you're going to do it in a Cardassian way. I think that what you do is you make sure that he still has all that clearance so that he feels like he's still important and he feels like he's still connected, but you cripple it so that all he can do is look around with it. He can't actually mm. carry out any actions anymore. Mm. Okay. That's that's better than actually removing his clearance. It's meaner. Okay. Yeah, all right. It's meaner. Yeah. But John, John you're, you're okay. I to totally take your, your criticism. I, I understand it completely. I just I like that it was used here to to further the animosity between them and to give us a clearer window mm-hmm. into sure. it. You know, here's this other thing. Sure, that I but don't trust you. So. But I also accept the explanations. Like mm-hmm. I, maybe I just needed other. I need I needed other Cardassian brain power to help me through it. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. There's nothing that can't be solved. I think it also enhances. <laughs> Garrick's character and who he is in that it's not that he is a Cardassian and he's a spy and he's on the station. It's that he's someone who has lost everything that he had in the past and he has to suffer through life having lost who he was. And this highlights that Mm -hmm. that's his predicament on the station. Sure. Sure. Well, the last point to discuss is something that you mentioned just a little bit earlier, John, and that's the what I feel is an unsatisfying ending to this episode. And you mentioned the fact that it just feels rushed, like, okay, we've done all this, and oh my God, we only have 30 seconds left, let's wrap everything up. But it's not even that to me. It's the fact that there's so much built up about Ducat throughout yeah. the episode, and we don't even see him at all anymore at the end. <laughs> right. Cisco, right. he diverts the energy out to the shields, and the station's okay, and then we get a final scene with Quark and Odo, and as they walk down through the promenade, it looks like business as usual. <laughs> right. Like, nothing ever happened to the station, right. and it's kind of weird, and I, you know, I don't know... My first thought is that, well, okay, maybe some considerable time has passed, like a day has passed, but they leave his office and, right. they, and they walk down the promenade and it looks like nothing happened. And <laughs> we don't see Ducat again. We don't see Garrick. We don't see Cisco or anything. 
And I, I really felt let down by the ending. Like I was shortchanged by all the drama that was built up and I was just kind of left hanging at the end. Yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Maybe the only thing they could have done is just shown, I don't know, maybe shown Ducat, like as they're leaving Odo's office, Ducat's running like hell down the other way being chased by security. (laughs) He's like, baby out of here. Come on, get me out of here. But, uh, yeah, and there is no satisfying ending to this episode, and that that is my biggest problem with it. I mean, it, you know, there's this yeah. little build up, there's all of these things where you can feel it's uneven, but the ending is very, very <laughs> unforgivable in a Lack lot of luster. ways. Yeah, yeah, it's just it just feels like they just got tired, and they were just <laughs> like, eh, let's let's just end this. I, I almost wonder if they shot it and they had to cut stuff out for. To make running time or something. I know you that know, that probably didn't happen, but I don't know. The writing process seems like such hell for this one that I, I would not be surprised if it was just a situation where it, that very thing happened that you just said. They were like, we get to the – OK. So the what happened? So we put the explosions through the sh- – OK. The shields – all right, fine. So the station's fine? Yes. <laughs> well, what, what do we have left? 25 seconds. All right. Get Odo and Quark out of the office. Let's just leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Because man, and it's it is disappointing too because um, the pacing at that segment, if you're not paying attention to where you are in the episode's runtime, you can almost expect there's something else coming. Yes, it's a crane yeah. shot on the promenade, but mm-hmm. maybe it's not going. Maybe they're going to cut it off. Maybe we're going to see Cisco come back to ops and like put his baseball back on the desk. And be right? Like, yeah, you know. But no, no. And the, well, or yeah. the, the 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 energy has been diverted to the shields, and then they still have to figure out how to get out of there and right. and maybe ops is still locked down somehow even though no one's going to die now but they still have to figure out how to completely deactivate this computer program yeah, well, that's i the mean the mind- so, so yeah you feel like something else might be going to happen sure Sure. Yeah, because there's opportunities for that, right? Like it, it's the, mm-hmm. yes, the station is saved from destruction, but there's so much still wrong. There's plasma fires burning in a next to a corridor that's blocked <laughs> right. for fifty yep. meters with debris. Golducott is on, you know, in your office. And yeah. uh, what's the other thing? Oh, right. Even though the energy went out to the shields, I'm sure those fusion reactors are not in great shape, having just like overloaded. The station's got to be a wreck right now. No, life, just walk around the promenade. And extras are fine, and you know, life support also still uh, still damaged. Oh, I'm going to oh, point right. out they're, they're still running on <laughs> right. uh, on no life support there. <laughs> so I'm just going to throw that one out there. <laughs> it's true. The fire's consuming what oxygen there is. DS9 <laughs> right, exactly. ends it's... mere hours after this. <laughs> Promenade walk, we see. It is really weird. It's almost like the promenade walk is just B-roll of Quark and Odo walking around, yeah. and then they're just doing a voiceover to actually fit right. it into this episode. That would be the most harrowing thing ever. Like You just hear voiceovers like, that was the last time we ever spent any time together alive. <laughs> oh, man. But John, you said there's no satisfying ending to this episode, and I, I think what you're saying is like in this episode, there's nothing about the ending that's yeah. satisfying. But I also feel that statement is true in that there is no possible satisfying ending to this episode because in order to actually do something that would satisfy me, they would need to make this a two parter or something yeah. because they need they need significant time to actually conclude this story. 
in a way that makes me feel like there was a payoff for everything that the crew just went through. Completely agree. I completely agree. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, I, I don't, I've never produced a television show. I've never written for one, but I almost wonder if, you know, there could have been some moment where they could have looked at this and the trouble they were having with it and say, can we turn this into a two parter and like juggle something around? I'm sure they can. I'm sure that there's something about production that I do not know, but why not? Like maybe the environment's different now where they could have done something like that. And you know, if they were running on showtime or something, but it just, it just really does feel like that. And I think that the only possible way to make it a one parter is to trim that lead in, have a different reason for like have the teaser uh, before the credits, have something else trip this program. So that you can spend more time dealing with it and then having a resolution as opposed to spending the first half of the episode just building up to the action, as it were. Well, what are our final thoughts and ratings on the episode? So, Michael, again, you picked the episode okay. today. So tell us your final thoughts and give us your rating. First. Before I give you my final thoughts, I want to – you know me and my, my love of minutia. Uh, I want to mm -hmm. mention that I didn't know this. But looking at the – doing a little research on, on Memory Alpha, the Odo Belt situation. Did you guys read about this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So cool. Yeah. I've always loved Odo's uniform from its collarless variant all the way up to the belt and collar. But apparently mm -hmm. this is the episode on which the belt disappeared and that in and of itself is not terribly compelling. But uh, I didn't know that Rene Aubergenois had originally asked for the belt because he liked the look of it mm -hmm. when the belt was put onto the uh, the black version of his uniform for the Mirror Universe episode. But once they threw it on the khaki version, he said it looked Buck Rogers-y <laughs> and asked yeah. if he could remove it. <laughs> and then we have that wonderful Kira noticing it in Crossfire later on where she's like, I thought you – thought you, hey, the belt, what, what's up? And his heart's broken. So he's like, I'm just trying to stick to – Essentials, major, and oh, I think he's. I think they said that. Um, I think he said, if you want me to keep this belt, you're going to have to put Tweaky on the show. And they <laughs> said, well, we can't get the rights to Tweaky, and so he said, well, all right, I'm going to have to lose the well, belt. Then screw it, yeah, exactly. I'm going to go back to the, the scant. And uh, and the only other thing, because I'm a combat nerd, I wanted to point out that the uh, the combat just made the wrong sound in this episode, which was cool. You had Bajoran sounds coming out of Starfleet communicators, which I thought was fun and. That consumed a few brain cycles when I was trying to justify that. I'm like, oh, well, they're on, but you're on comm lines. It's cool. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> well, I like that it's one of those moments where they have to keep tapping their badge over and over when they want to talk through it because, yes. you know, we get to the point in Star Trek where you just kind of talk. Yeah. Like you don't, yeah. You don't have to tap your badge every single time you want to but call I, somebody. Yeah, but I but love that. Here like, O'Brien can just, can just like break in on the party line. Like the Cisco's are having a conversation. O'Brien's <laughs> right. like, hey, Jake, yeah. I got it. I got you. <laughs> right. <laughs> you <know>? right. <laughs> oh, combat. They're the best things on, on all of Star Trek. But anyway, you wanted my, my thing on the episode. Um, I thank I thank you for your, for your indulgence this time. I, I it's it is one of those episodes that doesn't try to tackle big broad themes. It just tries to have some fun. Yes, to a degree, letting us get to know the characters we already know a little bit and giving them some fun times, but just letting us explore this playground, this adventure land that is Terak Nor, 
um, and to, to delve into its history a little bit, to see its greasier underbelly, its kind of grosser elements, and reminding us that this is a very dangerous place. This is not a posting that you necessarily want if you want a cushy Starfleet job. And I think all that together combined with just some wonderful little fan service bits like that awesome phaser ball uh, it, it just makes this episode so much fun to me. And I am so glad to have, that we've been able to, to chat about it. It's not a perfect baby, but it's, it certainly is beautiful to me. <laughs> I, I would, I would give this one 47 mis, mistweeting, mischirping com badges. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a good rating. How about you, John? What are your final thoughts? Uh, uneven episode. Uh, I'll never turn my back on an episode of Deep Space Nine, though, because there are those moments, uh, you know, uh, of conflict with the characters or the, the nice little character moments that are in there. It's it that sort of proves that everything. And I'm I'm a big actually defender of like Star Trek five. But this is this is, this has that sort of vibe about it where you might be able to beat up on it as a whole. But there are those char- there are those character moments in it where you're like, this is what makes it worth watching. And. For that, uh, I'm going to reward it, actually, seven red leaf teas out of 11. Ooh. Nice. Thank nice. You. Well, I I think you summed it up for me, John, actually. Uneven episode. So I it's a, it has its fun moments. I think overall it's uneven. I can definitely see what they're talking about in the struggle that they had to write the episode because it, it does come through on screen, I think, that that. It was not it was it was not a story that just came together, mm-hmm. you know, like some stories just fall into place. And this one you can tell took a lot of work. Um, I, I enjoy seeing all the different aspects of the station, and there are enough character moments in here, like Ducat thumping Cisco's baseball off the desk, which was wonderful, and the exchanges between Quark and Odo, in particular, were really great. That. Um, it has great moments, and like most DS9 episodes do, there are those little moments in here where they plant the seeds for something else. You know, they were so good on DS9 at dropping little things into episodes so that they could pick them up later on if they wanted to, and if they decided not to, that's fine. It's just something that was was there in the episode. So it's got a lot of that in there as well. And But I enjoyed talking about it today. It was, it was very interesting uh, to maybe influence my overall view of it. So I'm going to give this episode two leftover isolinear rides, which is what Cisco still has in his hands at the end. So apparently he didn't really need to get them all into place in order to get that energy. You always want to make sure you take a couple out. You know, there's just a couple that the engineers throw in there as extras. You take those out. Everything's going to be fine. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, John, thanks for joining us today. And before we go, tell everyone where they can find you around the interwebs. Well, you can find me uh, over on the Words with Nerds podcast uh, over on Podbean. uh, And we're also on iTunes. Um, Or you can uh, find me trolling around Twitter. And I do mean trolling. At Kessel Junkie. (laughs) K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Very good. All right. Well, thanks as always for talking to S9 with us. Hey, thank you for having me. Always a great time. See you, John. Thank you. Thanks. Well, Chris, I am very, very pleased to have talked about civil defense today. I think um, I hope you will join me in momentarily doffing uh, our cap to the uh, nameless, 
vaporized red shirt. I'm sure that everyone <laughs> on DS9 immediately went to his funeral as soon as they were done fixing the rest of the busted station, right? I'm sure. Maybe that's where Cork and Odo were headed at the end of the episode. <laughs> where they were going. They were going to Crewman Jones's wake. Yep. Hey. Why are you using my name for that? Oh, God. I didn't even realize I did that. Sorry, sorry. It's another job. That's right, everybody. Michael, he, he comes back on and he's trying to trying to knock me off. Trying to vaporize Chris in a different universe. No, it's, it was Jones with a Z. That's what it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, don't worry. Oh, he, don't he was worry. like a descendant of Spike Jones then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. Well, yeah, yeah, it was an interesting episode to talk about today, Michael. I, I, I was surprised when you brought it up because it's it's a bit different than the episodes that we usually do for DS9 on the show today. But, you know, it shows the diversity of storytelling That's on right. the series. But it's not the only thing we've been talking about on the network this week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. The Enterprise. Because if you break it down, you've got a flying saucer with rockets. It's everything that he was trying to avoid, but it's so much more than that. He found a way to make a flying saucer with rockets make sense. Earl Grey. Encounter at Farpoint. The alien ship is literally shooting at and killing colonists on the planet, and he's like... I haven't had my talk to talk with Beverly yet. The Ready Room. Star Trek continues. Even on just seeing a corridor wall, you'll see, like, there's just a slash of of red against the wall. <laughs> that That's a stylistic choice that they were making in, in that era. So Matt has a great eye while we're shooting a scene. The Orb. It, it's a milestone in the Cliff Bowl directing of Star Trek and Deep Space Nine. Defiant marks the final non-appearance of Sirot Gwafton in a Cliff Bowl directed episode. To the journey! Innocence rewrite. We'll use a deflector dish to emit a tachyon beam, fire a few photon torpedoes, blow up the anomaly of the week, and then we'll just fly off into space like we do at the end of every week. Commentary, Trek stars. Remembering Cliff Bull with Larry Nemechek. But the the thing about Cliff personally was, um, that I'll always remember and it comes through in this transcript, he's a pretty plain spoken guy. And he would call a spade a spade. And uh, how, how, what's your rating on this podcast? Are you pretty much up to uh, Warp 5? Prequel design. Or just, you know, for the sake of the actor, so they felt like in the design people, they felt like this was a real place that um, people would believe. And I, I just really appreciate that. Literary Treks. John Jackson Miller, Absent Enemies. And, and of course, the, the, you know, the larger thing about the whole phasing thing is it allowed me to tell a, a story that I think had a, a, a Star Trek feel to it, uh, you know, with regard to uh, you know the issue of war and peace. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week, and some days we even have two shows for you, and you'll find them in a wide variety of places, including on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from the website. So go grab some shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. 
If you'd like to send us your thoughts on civil defense or anything else we talked about in news today, you can do that in several ways as well. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose the ready room, and that will come to us by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners about the show. DS9, anything you want to talk about related to Star Trek, that's a great place to do it. While you're sending us information, if you have questions about Star Trek that you'd like us to talk about during the news segment, you can send those to questions from the fleet. If you go to trek.fm slash contact and use that same form, choose the option on there for questions from the fleet and send us anything you want to know about Star Trek or anything you want to know our thoughts on about the series. And we'll talk about it during the news segment. And we'd love to hear from you. And also, if you're over in iTunes and you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a rating and a written review. It helps other Star Trek fans find the show as they search iTunes, and we love to hear from you as well. It only takes a moment to leave a star rating and a written review, and we do hope to hear from you. Now, if social media is your thing, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and you'll find us tweeting away all the time on Twitter under username trekfm. Now, Michael, when you're not trying to figure out, you know, how to escape randomly appearing phaser balls that have been invaded at the Pocket Now headquarters, where can people find you? Well, when our replicators are functioning at uh, peak efficiency and everyone is getting their red leaf tea uh, on schedule, uh, I can be found at uh, Captain Two Phones on Twitter. It's Captain the Number Two Phones, where I tweet about smartphones far too often. Uh, and Star Trek, far too little. But uh, I do tweet a whole lot. So you should follow me at Captain <laughs> Two Phones. And I am also uh, – my voice can be heard every week if you want to hear more of these pipes on the Pocket Now Weekly podcast where we talk about mobile technology from smartphones to tablets to wearables. And we have a wonderful time doing it. And all the fun tricks I learned on that show I learned from Christopher Jones at Trek FM. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So you have completely retired the old Fats Riker Fats beard, Riker beard? Oh. Yeah. yeah, I don't send people to Fats Riker beard anymore. It's my favorite name, my favorite handle I ever came up with for anything. Uh, but unfortunately, Captain Two Phones is just a better fit for the the things I'm tweeting most often about. So yeah, but Fats is still active. It's just you know, it's in mothballs. It's waiting for me to have a reason to bring bring it out of retirement. Well, I saw a tweet the other day, and it had a hashtag. That's Riker on it. And when I read it, I thought about you immediately and the old that's fats. That's fats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were good days. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, I, I was, I got to go back and listen to some of my first Trek FM guest appearances. That was, uh, <laughs> those were a lot of fun. Those were fun. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, go check out Michael over on Pocket Now. And if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, you'll find me on quite a few shows. I mentioned at some point in the show today, the shows I do with Matthew Rushing, Literary Treks, where we interview authors and we talk about Star Trek books and comics and The Orb, where Matthew and I talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. So if you enjoyed today's show, definitely go check out The Orb, because you'll get a full hour's worth of Deep Space Nine analysis and discussion every week on that show. You can also find me on Warp 5, where 
I do the same thing, except it's about enterprise. And then I have my own interview show as well called Matterstream. So go check all of those out if you're interested. Before we let you go, we'd also like to remind you about our sponsor for today's show, audible.com. Audible is the best source for audiobooks you'll find online. You can get a free audiobook of your choice as a Trek FM listener just for signing up for a trial of Audible. So go over to audibletrial.com slash trekfm, sign up today, grab Fallen Heroes, which Michael recommended during news, or any other book that you want to listen to. And if you decide at the end of the trial not to stick with Audible, Again, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that audiobook. That's yours for free. So uh, go try it out today. Your support of Audible helps us keep the ready room coming. And we really thank Audible for their support as well. Again, that's at audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Another thing you can do to help us keep the ready room coming to you every week is to make a donation to the network at trek.fm slash donate. And I'd like to give a shout out to listener Ed Summers who recently made a donation to the network. Thank you so much, Ed, for your support. We really appreciate that. And for everyone else, if you'd like to support the network as well, go check it out. We have different contribution levels for you to choose from, and we have original Alien illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website, as a thank you for your contributions. And those are available as both badges and art prints, and you can mix and match those. Choose what you want in which format. So again, do like Ed and go over to trek.fm slash donate and check it out. And we really thank you for your support and for helping us keep the network going. Well, Michael, that's it for today's show. I've got to wander off. I'm going to go try to find Dukat and find out what the hell happened to him at the end of that episode because I've never seen anyone vanish quite like that before. <laughs> Well, that's a good call, Chris. I uh, I think it's time to stick some neurocene gas in it, because the ready room is done. <laughs>